two sentences to get us into segue into this week is that we live in two worlds as Christians. We live in the world that's dominated by Satan. The world is in the lap of Satan. There's a scripture that says that. But we are in the kingdom of God, in him. In him, and he is in us, and we're in God, and we're all together. So it's a, uh, that, that those two worlds are poor, probably more real than this world. So we as Christians are in God's kingdom, but we are placed here in this world. Um, and the world that's ruled by Satan, is constantly trying to destroy God's kingdom or infiltrate it or usurp God. Satan says he will be God. He, you know, whatever he's going to do there, the pride and everything that caused him to fall. And so there's a constant battle with him coming against the kingdom of God and, and trying to destroy the, what God loves, his people. And if he can't kill someone and destroy someone before they come to saving knowledge of Christ, then he's going to make it miserable for God's people. So, Daniel, there's a picture of that as we step back in Scripture in the book of Daniel. We had it with Esther also in the two worlds. Is that Daniel was taken out of Jerusalem. God's world there was more, you know, in a nice little community and stuff. And they were brought into exile into Babylon. A picture of the world, the fallen world. And as they're there now, King Nebuchadnezzar... A tool of Satan is wanting to indoctrinate and destroy everything the Jews knew about Jehovah God. And the indoctrination process, they target children. And so when they are looking at, you know, taking, the king says, get me these people and these young boys and every, it's the children to come and have them live in the palace where it's really nice, we're going to take care of you because it's easier to indoctrinate somebody and have them assimilate, remember that word from before, assimilate into another culture if they are tempted by all the wonderful things that culture has to offer. So, Daniel and his friends are fighting this off. They can't change their name. They can change their name, but they continue to keep their names, their Hebrew names amongst themselves. They continue to gather together, and they continue to keep their focus on Christ. Those are things that we need to do in the world today. Now we're coming into, he's been there a couple years, three years plus years. We don't know how long, but it's at least three because he's had his training. He's in the, the king's service now. And they are troubling times. They're interesting times. But we live in interesting times, too. <laughs> that's, that's a kindly said, isn't it? Interesting times. But as Christians, I, I, I pick that on purpose because they're not devastating times. They're interesting because we are in Christ. The world is, is devastation, and the world is going to hell in a handbag. But, but we as Christians are here for such a time as this. Because there's a contrast when, with the people who live in the world system, ruled by the world system, and those who are in Christ and ruled by him as lordship. There should be a really big notice, noticeable dis- difference from that. So in these interesting times, when things get really, really rough and ugly and evil and hateful, um, there's going to be a difference that being a Christian makes because we should make it very apparent our peace and our joy 
and our self-control and our kindness. Well, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control should be obvious in a world that doesn't reflect any of that. We're not victims of our circumstances, but we're participants of God's sovereign plan to make it evident to the world, the heavenlies also, that he is God, sovereign in control, and a good God. So we should be able to live in troubled times as these with peace, even though our circumstances are not very comfortable at times. Um, And that's the contrast that we want others to notice. So God brought Daniel to Babylon for such a time as this. To live for God in these times of exile. To put his life on open display. To show them the difference between Daniel's wisdom in this particular part of our story and the wisdom of the Babylonians. Because this story is going to zero in on that. The wisdom of God versus the wisdom of the world. So, starting then in chapter 2, in verse 1, hopefully that's a summation from last week. Um, In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. It's plural. He had a series of dreams, okay? It probably had a theme to it. But it was a recurring dream that he had, and we could probably even substitute that as a nightmare because his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians and the enchanters and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and they stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. If we just read that like that, it doesn't have much of an impact. But if we dig in and look what's happening here, we're going to, add, we're going to fill it out some. In ancient times, dreams were extremely important. They didn't, now, back then, they didn't have all the history, all the knowledge, all the what we have today. So dreams, the subconscious, they all believe that the gods talked to them, they, they gave them wisdom, they gave them direction. To have a dream, it, it was a letting them know what the future held. Understanding someone's dreams would assist the people to prepare for what lied ahead. I had a dream about this, so we got to get ready for this, or whatever. And they, so they were very, they were like guidelines for them to, 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 to prepare for life. And so this dream that the king had, or these nightmares that he was having, we can look forward to next week in verse 31, and we can see that the image in his dream was frightening, frightening to him. So his dreams are horrible, so horrible, the king could not remember it. I don't think that the king was putting it out there, tell me what my dream was as a test to them. I believe the king was saying, I had a dream 
it was so, I woke up, I panicked in the middle, I was sweating, pan, I woke up panicked. I have kind of pieces of what I can remember. You ever have that? You wake up, you had a bad dream, but you really can't remember what it was. And if it was so frightening, our mind just, something frightening kind of gets like, mind frozen, whatever. We just can't think anymore. We get into that fight or flight mode and all the blood goes from our brain to our extremities and we can't think very clearly or rationally. So night after night after night, the king was having these panicked panic attacks, waking up with the same vision, but he really couldn't even identify, put into words what he was seeing. But it was very troubling to him. He dreaded going to bed. People who have dreams like this dread going to bed. It's not looking forward to it. And then you start having a lack of sleep, sleep deprivation, and that doesn't help anything. So at this point, this king was a mess. He had more anxiety going on in his life, and he was just out there, demanding now, calling these people in. He, every king had on their staff, employed a huge staff of people, and their sole job was to interpret dreams, dreams because it was so important. Look at the people that he had. Four different groups of people that he had. He called in. All right? Calls them all in. This is important stuff. I have this dream. And he's demanding to put an end to it because he himself is miserable. Okay. So, in verse 2, I mean in verse 4, A. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic. I'm going to pause there and point out what that means in Aramaic. Why do, who cares? It's in Aramaic. This is the only place in the Bible that's written in Aramaic. It goes from Aramaic, from this verse, 2-4, through chapter 7. And then the rest of the book, 8-12, to 12, goes back to Hebrew. It's been written in Hebrew originally up to this point, and then the writer, who is Daniel, starts writing in Aramaic. Why does God do that? Well, we know that when the Babylonian, when the Hebrews, when the Jews returned out of exile from Babylon, their language was Aramaic because they learned it while they were in captivity. So, when we look at the book of Daniel, we can see that when it's written in Hebrew, this very first part, and then we skip over, go back to 8 to 12, that's specifically concerning the future of the Jewish people. That's dealing with the Jews, it's written in Hebrew. This section in here, between 2, 4, and through chapter 7, is directed at the Babylonians. So, it was written in Aramaic, which is their language. Why did God do that? Why did he have them write it like that? don't know. Maybe it's because God cares about all people and he wants the Babylonians to know that he cares about them. He had it written like that. Don't know for sure, but we do know this from that, is that it gives better, it gives stronger evidence to the fact that Daniel wrote it because he was a Jew who knew Aramaic. Okay, so, so they talked to the king in Aramaic, the Chaldeans. Oh, king, Live forever, do their thing. Tell your servants your dream, and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. 
Limb from limb, that's one of those words that have kind of stayed with us for a while, but if you get in and dig in what he was really talking about there, apparently, you know, we know how torturous these people were. They were pretty cruel. With this limb from limb thing, apparently, they would have a section of trees, and they would bend, I don't know what kind of trees they were, because they bent the trees in, and they would tie this limb to this tree coming in, and this limb to this tree, and, you know, they probably have them spread out like this parallel, that limb and that limb, and so you had them tied to different trees, tied at the top, and then they cut the rope, and the tree sprung, and it pulled their limbs out. I found that in two different places in commentary, so I wonder there might be some truth to that. I guess now you can also tie them to different horses. You've heard them do that and pull the limbs out of the person. It was something that they knew the king would make good on his threat, and it horrified these people. Um, Tear your limb to limb, destroy your houses, lay them in ruins. But if you show, if you reveal, if you explain the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. He was in a panic. He was in a fit. So he had to ump the ante and say, if you don't do it, this is what's going to happen to try to make these people, these wise men, you know, answer to him. What was, what was this, this group of wise people? Magicians. They were skilled in the magic arts. They practiced black art. The astrologers, they foretold the future by the stars where they were in the sky. Sorcerers, they probably conjured up evil spirits, whether they knew it or not. And the Chaldeans was a social class of highly educated people. So this group of wise men were pulling on wisdom from these different sources. And they knew what he was asking was impossible. They couldn't read his mind. So they say a second time in verse 7, they answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream. And we will show you its interpretation. Well, at this point, the king is livid. He's not buying it. He was thinking that they're making stories up. They're trying to to just say, oh, 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 honorable king, whatever. You know, just, just tell us what the dream is and trying to placate him or whatever to buy him some time because they, 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 they couldn't answer what he was saying, Okay because they couldn't, but he's getting more and more and more and more irritated. The wise men, they were trying to convince the king that he was being unreasonable instead of they were incompetent, okay? Um, They say to him, in verse 10, the Chaldeans answer him and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult. King James Version, it says it's rare. The thing the king is asking is rare. No one's ever asked this before. Difficult. And no one can show it to the king except, ah, the gods whose dwelling is not with the flesh. The king is asking them to do something, and this is the only place in scripture where that word difficult or rare is used, according to Strong's concordance. 
it was such a difficult thing that it was making it unlikely and improbable. Okay? It was impossible, in other words. There's just no way on earth. No one has ever asked. It's so rare because if they had asked us, maybe there would have been a solution. But it's just so far out there that it's in, in the impossible zone. And they attribute it to it. No human being can help you with this. It's only the gods, but the gods don't dwell among us. That was their out on it. Um, So the king answers and says to them, that in 12, well, let's hang off on 12. We'll just stick it here and says, they're panicked, they're asking a second time, trying, and the king thinks you're just trying to buy time, but he has nothing to do with that, all right? They needed something more to go on. If he gave them the dream, they could probably interpret it, but it wasn't happening, okay? And they claimed, also in this verse, they had no access really to the gods because the gods don't respond to them. What is happening here in this interaction with the wise men and the king is that setting the stage for Daniel. This is the world's wisdom. This is the world's wisdom that's come up to something that they can't explain. The king is in distress. He wants an answer. It is showing, making it evidence, manifesting it, making it apparent that they are limited in their wisdom. Okay? God is lining all this stuff up because God does reveal his plan to the, his people. Remember last week we found some verses in um, in. Uh, Isaiah that talked about the Bab- that they would be taken into Babylon, they'd be there for 70 years, remember all that kind of stuff? It was all laid out. God lets you know all that. God lets us know what's going to happen in the end here. We know what's going to happen, okay? So he does reveal his plan to his people. Amos 3.7 says, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. Okay? What we're seeing here now, as David comes on the scene that his faith in God is being put on public display. Okay. So, in verse 12, we have a picture of Daniel's faith. Verse 12 says, Because of this, the king was angry and very furious. At this point, <laughs> I think he's about to go mad, and he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. He's irrational at this point, just irrational. I mean, we're talking about a lot of people. He's just going to wipe off, just kill them all, just a knee-jerk reaction. Just kill them. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So here they are, they're killing off, you know, starting to kill off all the wise men. They go after to get Daniel and his friends, and they were going to put them in the group, they were going to kill them. And Daniel says in verse 14, let me say this. There's a crisis. The kingdom is in crisis. By this time, word's gotten out that king's on a rampage, he can't sleep, everyone's trying to placate him, and it's not working, and he's, out, he's going to do a massive slaughter of all the wise people in his kingdom. Interesting times to be living in, okay? But then when there's this destruction of God's people, we're going to see that God is going to take care of his people, Okay? 
back in my internship days, I had a um, department of psychiatry. There was a wonderful Christian pediatric psychiatrist, Dr. William Murdoch. And he said to me one time, there, are, there is never a crisis for Christians. There's never a crisis for Christians because we're not in crisis. The world may look like there is. Now, granted, he was a pediatric psychiatrist, so he dealt with a lot of crisis-ridden parents trying to calm them down. But there isn't. If we truly believe that God is in charge and he's all wise and all powerful, we're not in a crisis. We've got to get out of that mindset. Um, no matter how bleak it might appear out there, God still controls them. So knowing going in here now in verse 14, then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. So Daniel is not in a panic. He's doing this with prudence and discretion. Prudence is defined in here as caution and reserve. Being able to see and avoid evil. Okay? So he's being very cautious, knowing that there's evil that's lurking out there. And he's showing great discretion, which is the ability to judge critically of what is correct and proper. So he is taking a step of faith, a bold step, in even addressing the issue against the decree that the king had given to kill them all. That's looking pretty bleak circumstances, right? I would think that would be considered a crisis. But I just told you there's no crisis with Christians, and you can see how Daniel is dealing with it. And so he addresses Arioch, who is the captain of the king's guard, who was assigned to go out and collect all the wise men and kill them. In verse 15, he declared to Arioch, Daniel asks him, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Now, doesn't that sound calm? Whenever you're with a, whenever you do crisis intervention, you just can't get caught up in the mode of it. You've got to stay calm and relax. And he comes into this guy and says, well, why, what's going on? Why, why is it so urgent? And Dariok explains to him what makes the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time. I think he did not go to the king. I think he just went to Arioch and just says, I need to have a time with the king that might show, that I might show the interpretation to the king. At this time, did Daniel have the interpretation? No. Did he believe he could get it? Yes. Why was that? We know that God has provided Daniel with what he needs. Because when he places us in situations for such a time as the times we live in, God's going to equip us with all the things that we need. It's caused God's providential care. We know from last week in verse 17 that God had um, given Daniel wisdom beyond the wisdom of the Babylonians. Okay? And he gave him understanding in all visions and dreams. We know also from last week in verse 19 that God gave Daniel influence. They, him and his friends came and they stood before the king. And in 21, it, he gave him health 
and resulting in a long life because we know he was there until Cyrus, which was 70 years down the road. He was almost 90 years old. So God is preparing Daniel to be in this situation with calmness, with prudence, with discretion, with peace. His faith is strong enough to go and make this offer to the king. Why? First thing, he knew Old Testament scriptures. He knew about Joseph's interpretation of the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. They knew that. This had been passed down through the years. They also knew of Joseph's interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams. They knew that God had the ability to do this. Okay? Those stories are in Genesis 40. So like Joseph, God was going to take a step of faith, knowing that God can do this, and make his request to God, and give God completely all the glory in this. Because if we go to Genesis 41, we know that God gave full glory to, Joseph gave full glory to God in it before Pharaoh. And Daniel's going to do the same thing. Now the other interesting thing is when the, this matter of time, when the wise men were kind of begging for time, like, you know, up there in eight when he was saying, you know, asking them a second time, oh king, you know, tell us what it is. And the king says, I know for certainty you are trying to gain time with me because you see the word from me is firm. Okay? He thought they were playing games, trying to whatever, in hopes that, it says, um, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have Agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. In other words, he's saying in there, you're just buying time here with your empty words, thinking that I will change my mind and not kill you guys. That's what that verses mean. But he's not having anything to do with it. He's saying, no, you guys either interpret that or you're, you know, getting tied up limb to limb. So... But here we see that Daniel goes to Arioch and he asks for an appointed time with the king. Now, what is, how would that look? I don't know for sure, but I'm thinking if Arioch's in there and he's collecting all the wise men, how many hundreds, maybe even people it might be, I don't know, um, to, to string them up or whatever they're going to do, and Daniel goes to him and asks for some time, it could be that maybe he put him to the end of the line to get killed. I don't know. But whatever it is, it's a sense of time that was not granted to the wise men, but the time was granted to Daniel. Kingdom of the world, are they in charge of time? No. Kingdom of God, who's in charge of time? God. He created time. He's got this. We're never out of time. We always have enough time for stuff. Okay. So faith. This is another picture here of, of faith in God is being put on open display. Okay? So Daniel is kind of got some time, you know. His number's not called up to go get killed. We don't know if any of the wise men started to get killed. We don't know that really what's happening here. But it seems like it happened pretty quickly. He now goes back. Um, to his house. Because now what? Now what is he going to do? This is happening. 
The king had a dream. The king is demanding the interpretation of this dream. In interesting times like this, we, don't we collect our friends and pray? So Daniel calls a prayer meeting. <laughs> I already had a couple of those this morning. Will you pray? I need to pray for this, whatever. Hey, this is what we do. This should be a day-to-day, sometimes hour-to-hour thing. Can you pray for me? Because it's not a crisis, a situation. We need God's wisdom in this. Will you pray? Okay? So in verse 17, Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to, his, to Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, his companions. And you remember what their names meant? God is my judge. Who is like God? Jehovah is gracious. Jehovah is my helper. There you go. So he tells them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Seeking mercy. It reflects back, one of the commentators pulled out that the prayer that Samuel, Solomon had at the temple was a prayer about um, asking for compassion when they get taken into captivity. 1 Kings 8.50, Solomon prays, Grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them. The temple was probably destroyed at this time by, by Nebuchadnezzar. The temple didn't exist. But the prayer that was prayed at the dedication of that temple, God's words carry on. Flowers frayed, right? But the word of God lasts forever. And so they're, they're praying in accordance to this that there would be compassion on it. And we know from James 5.16, this ESV version, um, I'll read it here, um, that if we confess our sins to one another and we pray for one another, that you may be healed, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as to its working. A lot of us are more familiar with the King James version of that. Confess your faults to one another and pray for one another that ye may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So these men probably went back to Daniel's house confessing their sins to one another so they can have pure hearts before they go to God and plead for compassion and mercy. But their hearts had to be clear because then we know a righteous man, pure motive. And so many times when we're in a panic, we just go to God without really checking out our own hearts. So to confess our sins, to clear our hearts before we go to the throne of God and then make our requests known to him, in that righteous position, our requests get a lot of work done. And you can see here it did because in verse 19, the availeth much God answered their prayer, and he, re- he revealed the dream to Daniel. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. This brings to mind um, 
the ten lepers in Luke 17, where God healed them. Nine of them went on their jolly way, and it was only the one that came back. So many times we get answers to our prayer, and we might tell each other, oh, yeah, this is what happened, this is what happened. Not all the time do we say, and this is what God did, and I am so thankful. Check our words next time when we, when we share with each other how an outcome of something that was difficult. Do we include God in that, or do we just kind of use it on worldly terms? So he praises God, okay? We know that God is infinitely wise and powerful. Daniel's prayer here goes on to pull out two things that he's praising God for. His wisdom and his power. Before I read that, let me read you this little thing. A.W. Tozer has a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. And he has a chapter in it called The Wisdom of God. I quote from him. The idea of God as infinitely wise is at the root of all truth. Wisdom has the ability to devise perfect ends and to achieve those ends by the most perfect means. Wisdom sees the end from the beginning, so there can be no need to guess or conjecture. Wisdom sees everything in focus, each in proper relation to all, and is thus able to work toward predestined goals with flawless precision. In all of God's acts are done in perfect wisdom. First, for his own glory and then for the highest good of the greatest number for the longest time. And all his acts are as pure as they are wise, and as good as they are wise and pure. Listen to this part. Not only could his acts not be done better, a better way to do them could not be imagined. I love that. An infinitely wise God must work in a manner not to be improved upon by infinite creatures. I love that one too. How he's going to unfold it, we couldn't have done a better job with it. That's the wisdom of God, okay? That's what Daniel is is praising him for, his wisdom and his power. His sovereignty makes him all-powerful, okay? Although all wisdom and power are God's, he imparts it to us. And the greatest portion of God's wisdom is reserved for God's people. 1 Corinthians 2.14. Now this is the other side of the cross, okay? Um, But he gave it to Daniel and them too. 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Okay, so it's the spiritual person that can understand the spiritual things, the wisdom of God that he imparts. So Daniel is in his prayer now, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. There's our time. He's in charge of time. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise. Who's the wise? 
his people, those who can spiritually discern things, and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is the darkness and the light that dwells with them. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given, and then he asks him, he thanks him specifically for how he answered the prayer. For you have given me wisdom and might, and have made known, now made known to me what we asked you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Specifically, thanking him for that. Prayer is a conversation with God. God is, is answering man's prayer. Babylonians, this was impossible. There's no way you're going to know this. No man can know it. And the gods know it, and they don't dwell with man, so it's not going to happen. But we're finding out here, remember, his faith is on display, the faith in God's kingdom, that it's not impossible to get understanding from God. Okay? Um, the worldly wisdom... At the root of all that, with the watching the stars, you can understand some things with the stars, but not a lot of stuff. Or evil spirits, that we know they lie and everything. And just, you know, trying to figure out patterns and stuff. And that's coming from, a, you know, our world of vision, which is a little bit corrupt and off. And it's just, you know, so it's never a good, there's never real wisdom. The wisdom of God is coming from him for what I just wrote to you on Tozer's thing. And he departs it, he imparts it to his people. Okay, so there's no need for us to really interpret strange dreams or, you know, tarot cards. or We don't do that stuff. What we do is right here. We read it. We study it. We memorize it. We dive into its depths. We ponder the great intellectual insights of Scripture. We feel the intensity of its convictions. There's two things with God's wisdom. Okay? I read you a beautiful explanation from Tozer what his wisdom is. On our end of it, there's two aspects to wisdom, an objective and a subjective. This is what I want you to pull out of here today. Objectively, God has revealed um, his word. In his word, it tells us who God is, who we are, how we can please God, you know, um, what, to, what to expect, and all that kind of stuff. This is knowledge we're getting. This is, this is the objective wisdom of God in here. Okay? It tells us what we should believe about him. It's grounded in Scripture, how we should, appray, how we should behave accordingly to this. We know all that stuff. Then there's a subjective part of it which is applying the principles of Scripture in various situations of life. Okay? This subjective wisdom, or this, uh, um, the wisdom that comes subjectively is, happens through prayer. Humble petition. Seeking to understand how God wants us to apply his word in these interesting times, in this situation. So we know objectively, as we study it and memorize it and and ponder upon it, what we're supposed to do. But then what does it actually look like in real life? 
What do I really should do? It doesn't say this is what you need to do with your finances or your whatever. You know, I know we're supposed to honor God with it, but what? That's the subjective end that comes through prayer. To seek to understand how God wants us to apply this. And he's not far away. He's right here. He does dwell among us. He dwells in us. Jesus Christ came that God may dwell among us. And when he ascended to heaven, his spirit now indwells us. The Babylonian wise men did not have any of this, but we do. Colossians 2, 3 says, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And one last thing to look up here. Isaiah 11. I love Isaiah. Isaiah 11, talking about Jesus is about to come in verse 1. There shall be a shoot from the stump. But I've taken it in verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Those same things, God's spirit indwells us, indwells us. So we have, in this chapter we just read, in this part of verse chapter 2, a Contrast between the worldly wisdom of the Babylons, who admittedly said they can't access to God's wisdom because they don't live here, to the wisdom of God that says, yes, I dwell among you, and I know all the deep things, and I do impart this to us. So we have to ask ourselves, is our faith on open display out there? Do we get in a panic? Do we resort to, I don't know what to do, or whatever? Or do we calmly take on these little things that come our way with prudence and discretion and go subjectively to, the, to God in prayer so we can have what they see in us can be a contrast to the world that's just in a panic and how they deal with it.